This is Frugal Living. This is part two of a two-part episode on clutter. If you haven't listened to the first part, you can find it wherever you're listening to this episode. Or jump right in. I'm not the arbiter of listening habits. As a reminder, I'm talking to Jennifer Howard, the author of Clutter and Untidy History. Here's part two of our conversation. When you want to buy something now, you go to a store or you go online. And that online aspect, before online was practically available in the U.S., you talked about mail order and the birth of magazines, which are a thing we collect still with Montgomery Ward back in, what, the 1800s? Yeah, the late 18th century, there's the mail order catalogs, Sears and Ward being the two biggest ones. And they took advantage of the spread of the post office, the rise of the railroads. And of course, as settlers you know, moved westward, I mean, now there were people already living in those lands. It's very important to remember that, that this was not, you know, unpopulated territory. But when you know, the U.S. started pushing west, people needed stuff to homestead with. They needed farm equipment, they needed clothes, they needed or fabric, they needed staples, they needed tools. And that then they, you couldn't just run over, I, you know, I have a hardware store three blocks away, I need a tool, I can run over there to, or borrow one from my neighbor, you know, that's better. But if I were living on a homestead and couldn't get to a store that would give me what I need to grow food for my family, I would be very happy to have, you know, have a catalog that would send me something. I talked to one historian who also made the point that for some people, it was not only easier, but safer. For example, Black Americans could not always safely go to some stores to buy what they needed. And it was safer sometimes to, and as well as just more accessible for them to order something they needed from a catalog. So there's a fascinating history there. So you have the, the means of transportation to get the stuff to the consumer. And then you have the, the rise of the ads and the, the magazines, the catalogs and with technology, newspapers, and then radio eventually, you know, the period like 1880 to 1920 is a real watershed in terms of technology that would help spread the word quickly to to create this kind of mass appetite for stuff. Yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand. One of the things we talk about in this show is developing new income streams. You know, we talk to entrepreneurs, we talk to people trying to build businesses. And at the other side of it is this conversation of you have people who are very successful at building high growth businesses that are made on selling things. And to get that kind of exponential growth, you need exponentially more people to sell to and exponentially more items to sell. Is there a way for commerce to step in to help as much as it's hurt? That's a, it's such a great question. And I spend a lot of time thinking about that. I, I recognize, I mean, I'm, I'm not a socialist. I, I understand that people need to make a living and that this is the system that we have. I understand that people need stuff and can there can be a lot of pleasure. You don't have to have a lot of stuff necessarily, but you know, I, I have my favorite tea mug and, and that I find that a part of the ritual of my daily life. It's very satisfying. We, we get attached to things and there's a, that is part of our, our material lives and maybe can be a very nice part. I do think that businesses collectively have so much clout and even small ones, I think, because they can reach individual consumers and develop relationships with those consumers that some of the big corporations just can't. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know anybody at Amazon, but I know my local bookseller. And there's a lot of community investment that that business, I mean, it is a business, but they work so hard to stay connected to the community and 
support local writers who are doing really interesting work and get books to kids who need who can't afford books. So there's a lot of real social investment, as well as what I think is a, a business that's doing pretty well. Businesses have a lot of power too, too, in terms of where they source their materials from. And I realize that not everybody can go and get the most sustainably produced, you know, cotton or whatever. To I mean, there may be costs that are just prohibitive. But I think being thought, if businesses are more thoughtful about sourcing their material, conditions in their factories, for example, you know, even even big corporations that they have so much power, they could really make a, and some of them do make a difference, you know making sure that, that they're not getting clothing made in sweatshops or under sweatshop conditions. They can reduce their packaging and the wastefulness of that. They can make it easier for people to return items to be recycled. Some companies, I mean, even, I don't know how, I have not looked into how successful this program is, but I know at one point H&M would take back clothing that was worn out and you could, and they would recycle it. I, I have not looked to see, you know, uh, how effectively that program worked. I'm very aware of greenwashing, this concept that people can sometimes say that they're being eco-friendly, but it's just lip service. And I have no idea, you know, you know, buyer beware, I guess, check it out before you assume that this, whatever it is, is going to be a good thing for you and the planet. I think actually consumers also, we, we, I don't often feel like I have very much economic power. You know, I'm not wealthy. I'm trying to feed my family and pay my mortgage. But I do have some buying dollars, right? I mean, I do have a choice about what I buy when I do buy things. And collectively, that adds up. Companies will respond to what consumers want, ultimately, if we make those concerns known. There is some hope. We, we can, without overthrowing the system, I think we can adapt it. And there's a lot of, there's so much potential in like green energy now, for example, and, and also an urgency with the climate crisis, which is terrible for everybody, including businesses. But there may be some great new opportunities to be entrepreneurial and profitable and still kind of push things in a more sustainable direction. At least that's my hope. No, I like that. And I, it's optimistic, but I think it's also more and more necessary, you know, as we, as we move forward, let's say as, as entrepreneurs, there's opportunities to make money because you talk about the, the problem of greenwashing, you know, people making, you know, outrageous claims about how eco-friendly they are while they're damaging other things or many things, but to fight against that by making these types of changes you're talking about, selling locally, working to make changes locally for if you're a bookstore, you know, the small businesses, the local authors, reading programs, tutoring programs, the things that local bookstores can do. It's never easy, but you can look into these, you know, like the answer as a consumer is always do more research and you'll get a better deal. And that deal doesn't have to be just monetary. Like you'll save more money if you do more research, but you can also find a more sustainable business to support by doing more research. Absolutely. And then you can feel good about what you're, what you're buying or what you're supporting. And that, that is a cumulative benefit that, is, that goes beyond the money that you might save or not. You do have to do your research, you're right. But you don't necessarily have to spend a lot more money to have a more sustainable life. And that can include simple decisions like just saying no to tote bags or plastic bags at the store. There's been a huge change in, in my city. I live in D.C. And several years ago, they passed a plastic bag tax, the five cents a bag. And if you brought your own bag to the store, you got five cents back, which was great. And so that, that really incentivized us to do a good thing and take our bags back to the store. But so many times you, you're given a bag and you just don't need it. The business can save money by not giving you a bag. You can keep something out of your house that you don't really want or need. 
the planet doesn't have to pay the cost of all those extra bags. You know, so there could be a win-win-win situation. That's a very small example, but if enough of us do that kind of thoughtful approach to what we buy and what we need, we all benefit and save not only money, but agitation down the road when you, you know, the fewer things to clean up and deal with. I like this a lot because it also ties back to another theme of one of the issues with clutter, one of the issues with when you've hoarded an enormous amount of items and you pass away, you've left this issue for someone else to deal with. And that's what we do often when we think of environmental concerns. We take what we need, and it just seems like too much, so we assume someone else will handle it. And I like the idea in both cases of, why not try and make a a difference now? You know, if we all start making small differences now, it'll be much less for whoever comes after us to deal with. Yes, for sure. It would be great if more people were able to think a little bit ahead like that and sort of project themselves forward into there and think, well, who will deal with my things when I can't do it anymore? Maybe I could actually enjoy these things more if I deal with them now. I could sort of really keep the things that are helping me in my life now and give me a richer life, you know, not monetarily richer, but just, you know, more satisfying. Now, of course, I have to say a lot of people, including my mother, wound up in a position where they, they just don't have the agency anymore to make those decisions. I think the trick is doing it while you still can, if, if possible. I realize, you know, life happens. Not everybody's going to be able to take the time to do it. But I think part of mindful living is, it for, it can be part of mindful living, even everyday living. Those questions, do I really need this? Is this something that maybe somebody else could use? And it is a kindness to both yourself and your future, you know, your heirs or your family or your loved ones, if you can kind of take a thoughtful attitude toward your stuff while you're still using it or while it's still in your in your life. You know. And you may end up enjoying your life more if without, you won't feel guilty about all the stuff you're not using. I get that. And I, I really like sorting through stuff, but moving from apartment to apartment, to condo, to house, it allowed me to pack up everything I own and go through and donate what I could, give away what I could, trash what I didn't use and what wouldn't be helpful. And it honestly, it's a very cathartic process to go through your possessions, to find things, especially that have been deep down in boxes or under stuff, and find out, do you value this? <laughs> Is this something that's worth keeping around? It can be very satisfying. I mean, it can be a way of getting back in touch with who you are, what your values are, what's meaningful to you in your life, You know, what reminds you of something or someone that you love. I still seem to be dealing with a little bit of my mother's stuff. Every time I think I'm done, I have another, find another box somewhere. But I recently found some seashells that she had collected, and I spent part of an afternoon going through them, sorting them into different categories, and adding some shells that I found that we had collected from some beach trips. We had a couple of cheap glass vases around, you know, just the kind of thing that just sort of winds up in your house. So I filled a couple of those with some of the shells, and they're now out in the dining room. We can see them, and my son said, oh, it's Grammy's sea glass collection. It looks so nice. So now it sort of restores her to us a little bit and is not just another box that's sitting in my basement waiting for me to deal with. And it was free. I mean, all the things we had were on hand. I didn't have to go out and buy something, you know, buy decoration. I created it and it, now it has meaning to me, which is really nice. It was satisfying. That's wonderful. When you think about the topic of clutter, it might not seem like, oh, like this is, this is a topic we should talk about in a frugal podcast. But this is exactly why we should and why we need to consider it. Because if we're surrounded by clutter, and when we see it, what we see is, oh, it's clutter, it's trash, it's garbage, it's, you know, written off immediately in our head because of shame or, you know, distaste, then we, we've created 
trash in our mind. When we know that it's there and we look through it and we evaluate it for what it is, sometimes we can create what you just did, a new experience to interact with, you know, a grandparent. That's amazing. And that's something you can't pay for. <laughs> no, and it, it would be less meaningful if we did pay for it. You know, it was really, and it also solved the problem of what am I going to do with all the seashells? So there was a practical benefit as well. The worst things about clutter is how it turns good, useful, sometimes meaningful things into trash, you know, as you just described. You can't see it and, and you can't see the usefulness or the beauty or the emotional connections of things because it's just overwhelming. It's just this massive stuff. And that's so wasteful. I mean, it's wasteful of the stuff and of emotion, you know, that there are things to be saved from that morass, probably. Not everything. You Some things you do want to rehome, then you're denying yourself the pleasure of seeing something happily rehomed. I don't know if you ever talk about buy nothing groups or any of that on this show. We haven't as much as I'd like to. I only became aware of them after I finished writing the book. But in my neighborhood, there there's a buy nothing group, and then there's a group with a somewhat saltier name. I don't want to, you know, say it out loud because, but it's a little more irreverent. And people will give away. They'll post. I mean, it's everything. It's it's kind of like a fun community game too because it is very useful. I just rehomed a bracelet that I had that I wasn't wearing, and then I found some old some 19th century periodicals that my grandfather had sent my mother, and they'd sat in an envelope for 40 years. I found a bolt of cloth with a lot left on it. I posted it to this group and a woman who runs a sewing club at a local high school said, oh, I, I'll take it. We can use it for our class project this fall. I'm like, perfect. You know, that's great. So I now get the sort of the pleasure of knowing not only have I, do I not have to find space to store those things, but, you know, some high school students will be practicing their sewing skills with my mother's old fabric. And she would love that too. She loved to sew. So. You know, it's really nice. And that that's a community. I, I feel like I've been enriched a bit by giving those things away. That's really nice. Anyway, but I think the buy nothing groups or equivalent are an interesting and probably growing phenomenon. I love that. The, I mean, this strikes on two really common themes that we talk about all the time. One is community. Like you want to live a frugal life, be involved in your community for this reason. You know, you can give and take from your neighbors because why not? They have clutter, you have clutter, you know, one man's trash trash is another man's treasure. I love the idea of community being a part of a frugal lifestyle. But the other part, and this really ties back into what you were saying before, the things you have have a life before they get to you and once they leave you. And I love the idea that a bolt of cloth has lived for so long and is going to another place where it's going to teach people to use it, which is really cool. I'm glad you, you think so. I really, I was really tickled when I found that particular home for that item. And, you know, to have something go and help equip the next generation with useful life skills. I wish I knew how to sew. I didn't really pick it up from mom, unfortunately. But these kids, you know, maybe they'll be able to go and, you know, save some money and do something, you know, kind for their friends and family down the road because they can sew. It's a point of connection. You know, clutter becomes a point of community connection, which is really, really nice and redeems some of the burden of it, I think. Certainly. I think when we think of clutter, often we think of a burden. And I love the idea that there's a way to transfer that into connections and joy. Like that's a really unique approach. And I, I think that's one of the reasons your book is such a compelling read. And again, I want to make sure we, we talk a little bit. I mean, we've talked a lot about this book, but I want to make sure people understand <laughs> that this is something that you can go out and get. It's new. It came out in 2020. And it's called Clutter in untidy history. That's right. Yep. Fantastic. And again, you're the author. You wrote this book. 
and it's based on your personal experiences and much, you know, super relevantly for us, all of the research you did and you have a history as a journalist. So it's, you know, top to bottom, highly recommended for the frugal audience. You can borrow it from your library. You can get it for free if you want to buy it or if you're listening to this. It's also on Audible and anywhere else you buy books. So worth checking out for sure. Is there anything else that would be helpful for our listeners to know about the book? No, you did, you did a lovely job presenting it. Thank you. I have a website if people are interested. It's just myname.com, jenniferhoward.com. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm trying not to be too much on them, but I do, I do look in and enjoy some of the conversations. I do love hearing other people's stories about clutter, and I think most of us have a story. So one of the best things about publishing the book has been getting to talk to other people about their unique versions of what I went through and what they're seeing in their own families and their communities. And I, and I have to give a shout out to local libraries too. I mean, I, I love, I'd love it if you know, if people feel like buying the book, that's great. Please, you know, feel free to rehome it after you do. But I'm also a big fan of libraries. I borrow a lot of books from the library myself. That it also is a sale for the author because the library, you know, using public funds will buy a book. And just to reach readers is the main hope. It helps very much if people, if people like books to go on Goodreads or Amazon and give them, you know, that that's a free thing you can do that really helps authors. I love that too. Again, we just talked about the importance of community. And if you're tight on funds, but you read the book at, you know, a library, you've gotten it for free from a, you know, a public library or even one of those little uh, small libraries that people put up in front of their houses. You can still support the author, and I love the idea that you can go leave a review on Goodreads or on Amazon and know that that'll make a difference. It makes a huge difference, honestly. I mean, every author I know is so appreciative when people who like the book go in and say so. And it does make a difference as far as like maybe a library would actually add your book to to their collection if they see that it's getting some interest on Goodreads or Amazon or whatever. So, and it's uh, I think authors just really crave connection with readers too, and to know that, that their book has reached some reader out there is just a wonderful thing. And writing a book is you know it's, it's a very isolated experience. You have to be isolated in some ways to do it, but no book really is fully done until it finds a reader. And that's there's a, a life cycle there, which is I think really really important. That's absolutely true. This is the least important of the topics I wanted to talk about, and that's why I've saved it for last. But can you tell me about Cluttercore? I'm so I have know so little about it. Cluttercore, oh yes. I, I write a bit about this in the afterword of the edition, the paperback edition that's coming out in January. But during the pandemic, in particular, so people might have heard of Cottagecore, this sort of vogue for you know, like cottage-like, you know, uh, country house type stuff. So Cluttercore kind of takes what has been often the subject of shame, you know, having too much stuff, and turns it into an aesthetic. Now, the difference for me is that Cluttercore is pretty artfully arranged. Like you, would, you, would, you could walk into a room and you wouldn't say, oh, my God, this is terrible. How do people live like this? You know, you'd say, oh, they have a lot of stuff, but it's, it's so interesting. Look at all the colors and the patterns and the textures and kind of a, an antidote or a, a, re, a response to minimalism, you know, a correction in the opposite direction. And it is, especially during the pandemic, when so many people had to be isolated or you know had to spend time at home if they could. Uh, it became very appealing to have you know things surrounding surrounding us. It'd be more appealing just to have comfort, a comforter, comfortable, comfortable sort of cocoon of things. And that uh, clutter core aesthetic is it embraces that. And I guess one point to make there is that these you, know, you can spend a lot of money on these aesthetics, but you may also have stuff in your basement or your garage or your attic. 
that you, if you feel like exploring this aesthetic in your own space, you could probably do it pretty cheaply. You probably have stuff that you could, you know, maybe it's time to trot out grandma's China and, you know, put those old family photographs up, just sort of experiment. It'll be interesting to see how that aesthetic, I feel like minimalism maybe is passe for a lot of people now, or just maybe it's day is sort of over for now. People want to kind of be a little cozier, a little more domestic, you know. If you don't feel like you're going to get rid of all the stuff that you have, why not celebrate it, you know, in in your style? Exactly. And then at least it gives you that a chance to say, well, what do I really like? Do I really like this old photo? And so I've been dealing with family photographs and I, there's this portrait, it's a photographic portrait of a sort of eerie child, this blue, uh, blue-eyed blonde kid from the early, probably early 20th century. And I'm not quite sure who he is, maybe a grandparent or a great uncle or something, but he kind of floats around the house. And I the photo, I, I was working with somebody on the photos and she said, oh, get rid of it. It's, it's eyes, follow, his eyes follow you around the room. And, and I almost did. And then my son said, well, if you get rid of it, you know, it'll, it might bring a curse down on the family. And I thought, oh, so I actually found a little, a neat little space in the basement where he can, this child can be sort of our ghostly ancestor presence. But he, we actually now sort of honor him in some way because he, we see him and we say hello to him when we're down there. And That's wonderful. Jim, I realize we didn't talk at all about personal organizers, and and I don't know if that's something you want to explore. But if if people are interested in entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial spirit and clutter, I, there's a lot to it's something to be aware of. Is that organizers can really be doing a great community service and also make a living for themselves. How do we find personal organizers? They're they're not hard to find. There's a group called NAPO, N-A-P-O, which is, stands for the National Association of Professional and Productivity organizers they changed their some of the letters the words in their name and they have local chapters and a directory of people you know in your area you can find i mean it depends on your budget you know that some of them will work for pretty modest rate they provide a lot of emotional support and and they're not trained as therapists but they kind of are de facto therapists they'll listen to your stories about your stuff and sort of help you work through these emotional roadblocks if in fact you find yourself in a situation that you feel you can't handle and they usually charge by the hour, so maybe you just need a little bit of help and support. Maybe you have a good friend who's an organizer or who has those impulses. But they are a great resource, and I, I, I've been. They're they're mostly most of them are women. It's still kind of a female-driven profession, but it is very can be very flexible for people with children or other commitments, caregiving or or other you know or people who just don't like office work. And I've been very impressed with both how successfully entrepreneurial many of them are, but also how humane they are, and just sort of the the ones I've met anyway are very serious about trying to help people through some tough situations. And it's a nice kind of going back to these, like what sort of models can we find for capitalist work that is, that is, that provides a living, but is also kind of socially responsible. And I think the organizing is an interesting example of that. And you can find every, I mean, they're very high end ones and then they're very sort of grassroots ones and so everybody in between, but it is worth knowing about. And maybe even some people might, it seems to be an appealing line of work for some people as well. Perfect. Yeah, we'll make sure that we have links to it in, we do blog posts for every episode. And so we'll have links to obviously your site, your book, and then this organization in our blog. Special thanks to Jennifer Howard, who wrote the book Clutter and Untidy History. And of course, to our audio editor intern, Jenny Blavelt. I'm Jim Marcus. Frugal Living is sponsored by Brad's Deals. The team at Brad's Deals is creating a better way to shop. It's not just about finding the best price, though Brad's Deals is great at that too. It's about connecting with other consumers. 
The editors at Brad's care about quality and value. That is what makes a great deal.